Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have a special guest, Connor Boyack. Welcome, Connor. Thank you. Did I say your name right? You did. It's Connor Boyack. Boys that yak a lot. Uh, that's what uh, <laughs> I grew up in a house of four boys, and we yacked all the time. Yeah. Uh, now, now I write all the time, so it's a different form of yakking it up, I guess. Yeah. Wow, four boys. We have joining us from the left coast, Jessica yes. Wilkinson. Thank yep. you for joining us, Jessica, as Thanks the co-host. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Good to have you on again. Jessica was a guest, oh gosh, about six months ago, right, Jessica? Yeah, yeah that sounds and right. We, Jessica was trying to convince people that homeschooling is a-okay. <laughs> I'm a public school kid. I went to public school in a little town called Littleton, Colorado. And um, I actually felt like I got a decent education. I was a little annoyed by a lot of things, but seems like a lot of uh, education stuff is a disaster now. Is that how you see it, Connor? So I am also a graduate of the public school system, uh, although for the past decade we've homeschooled our kids. Hmm. Um, I uh, subscribe to the idea that the government schools are extremely problematic in uh, what they are teaching, the quality of the outputs they're producing. College professors very well know that the trend of remedial classes is increasing across the country, that these high school graduates increasingly have to take, you know, basic uh, courses again to kind of get them up to snuff. Um, and, you know, 40, 40 years ago, a lot of people may not remember this at all. The Reagan administration put together a group called the National uh, Commission for Excellence in Education. And the purpose of it was to go review how schools were doing across the country, curriculum, content, pedagogy, and everything else. They came out with a report in 1983, April 26th, 1983, titled A Nation at Risk. And they said, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, but I'll get this about 90% right, the, the kind of stinging part of what they said was that the educational foundations of our society are being threatened by a rising tide of mediocrity. That was the term they use, rising tide of mediocrity. And that if a foreign power had, if, if a foreign power had attempted to impose upon America the very mediocre educational performance that now exists, we would have seen it as an act of war. As it stands, we've done it to ourselves. That was their quote. So 40 years later, I'm like, are things getting better? Are they worse? I think most people don't really see that we've massively improved. Many would argue like myself that we've continued to decline. So personally, I am a big advocate for, you know, homeschooling, private school, alternative approaches, because I feel like the output of the government school system is just of such lackluster quality in terms of just producing amazing, informed, engaged citizens to, you know, make a better world. We get apathetic, you know, social justice warriors who don't know their history at all and therefore repeat the mistakes of the past because they say, oh, this isn't like all those other times that we've, you know, uh, failed at socialism or, you know, whatever the, the issue is. So I have a lot of thoughts on the topic, as you might be able to tell. <laughs> is that what drove you to create curriculum um, for children or books for children with workbooks and things like that? Yeah, so the Tuttle Twins uh, books, these these kids books that teach about, you know, free markets and entrepreneurship and money and all the rest. We, we started the Tuttle Twins because in 2014, when we started, 
Um, I, I basically went on Amazon trying to find something like this for my own kids. I run a think tank called Libertas Institute. We change laws. We you know, kind of fight for freedom at a state and local level. And my kids would start to ask me when they were young, dad, what do you do? Like when you go to work, what do you do? And I'm like, uh, type on the computer, you know, like, how do I, how do I tell them? Like I was fighting eminent domain today at the, you know, in this city and I was, you know, pushing back on civil asset forfeiture in this other city. So I went on Amazon hoping to find materials that could help me talk to my kids in like simple terms. There wasn't anything. So that was kind of what prompted the idea of like, hey, maybe this would be an idea. We, we did one book. There was no vision for what it's become. It was just like a fun little, you know. Wait, project. hold on a sec. So you, I, I understood you to say that you have the books you said that, and you're using them at home or that you well, wrote so, them? Yeah, I write these books. The Tuttle you wrote Twins the books. Tuttle Twins? Yes. Yeah, I'm the author of the Tuttle Twins books. Oh, Okay. For some reason, I thought that that was okay. Sorry. So you're the <laughs> author of the Tuttle, Tuttle Twins. I am. Yes. You're the guy. Okay. All right. I, for better or for worse, uh, here I am. Yeah, we've sold. Wait, over did four you say that you were against civil asset for, forfeiture? Is that out? Abs absolutely. Off this podcast. Okay. You're you're banned. Right. We're huge fans of civil asset forfeiture. Just kidding. Totally. Just kidding. Man. <laughs> So, so you have kids. How many kids do you have? Two you kids. They're Two 13 kids. Okay. and 11 now. So the kids that you have are asking you about what you did. And your, your thought is, I want to actually tell them what I'm dealing with. Right. In a way they yeah, can I, understand. Yeah. And like, then you're you like, know, I'm going to write a book about it. Is that how it worked? Well, my, my parenting approach is to be very kind of forthright with my children. Like we never did the Santa Claus thing you know, and, and like the tooth fairy, it's like, okay, sure. We'll play along. Yeah. Another reason to kick me off I'm your podcast. Kidding, right. And, uh, and so I was, I was more like truthful. I, I I've never really liked lying to my kids about anything or like going along for these cultural things. I've always been kind of straight up with them. You don't and say so happy they, holidays, do you? No, uh, happy Merry holidays. Christmas kind of okay, guy. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't, yeah. I wasn't sure where you're going with the Santa. Okay. Right, okay. Right, I got you. No. And so, so when my kids, when my boy who was five at the time, when he would ask me what I did, I didn't want to give him like a fluffy, meaningless answer. I wanted to find a way to tell him what dad does all day, running this think tank, you know, fighting for freedom, changing laws. But I, I had no clue how to do that. Like I, I had never attempted that conversation before. My hope in searching on Amazon was like, there's books for birds and the bees and potty training. And like, I mean, any controversial, weird topic you can find a kid's book for, yeah. except for, you know, like these principles of freedom. And so that's yeah. where the wow. Twins books came in. And that's probably why it's grown so much because obviously there was a void that you've filled. Um, you want to share kind of the journey of how Tuttle Twins has grown and the demand that's happened, especially when um, CNN gives you a shout out. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well how long ago one. was this that you did the first book? Uh, our first book was in 2014. Oh, okay. And and then we did like a couple books a year from then on. Every, every like eight to nine months, we would do a book. And again, this was just a like I'm running a think tank. I'm I'm hiring all these people. I'm changing all these laws. This was just like a little side hustle fun project. There was no vision for like this big strategic whatever. So it's and, not like uh, the books were funding the, the think tank. It was the no, think tank we were, first. 
Yeah, okay. we were hardly selling any books. We were selling a few thousand here and a few ten thousand there, and things would kind of trickle. Upward. How many have you sold now? Uh, almost four and a half million. So, to give you a snapshot of what that looks like, in our first six years combined, 2014 through 2019, pre-COVID, we sold a total of, of 750,000 books. And, 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 you know, the curve is kind of going up because we're publishing more books, we're becoming better known, we're doing more marketing. And we were like extremely pleased with that. 750,000, like most books sell 500 copies on average, industry-wide, you know. And, and so I was, I was tickled. Of course, then COVID hit and everyone's a homeschooler now. And parents are freaking out about all the authoritarianism and, you know, how do, my, how do I talk to my kids about this, about what's going on in the world? So in, in 2020, we sold 1.3 million books, which was almost double our entire past six-year history. You know, 2021, 1.7 million books. And, and like just this, this curve just exploded. And, uh, and there have been like, you know, COVID definitely wow. was a big boost. Um, what you're mentioning, Jessica, with the CNN thing, things like that have helped where CNN published this article against us a few months ago, calling us the kind of organizers or whatever of this uh, right wing children's entertainment complex. And the whole <laughs> basis of the article was that, oh, look at these people. They're writing in response to this supposed left wing indoctrination in schools, which doesn't exist and doesn't happen. Therefore, yeah, sure. what these guys are doing is crazy. Yeah. And so they were trying to like gaslight us. But we sold over 100,000 right. books as a direct uh, result of CNN's article. We turned they gave it into you a free ad. commercial. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's we hilarious. emailed our whole audience. We made a coupon code called CNN that people could use to get a discount. Oh, so brilliant. I always tell my friends, like, if anyone has a contact at MSNBC to, you know, hook a brother up, like, I'd love another attack <laughs> article because it's it's great for business. Yeah. Can, can you start further back uh, going off of Jessica's question? Can you start further back? What uh, public schools did you go to? So I grew up in San Diego. So uh, I went to the public schools down there, a city called Poway uh, in the oh, yeah. North County. And, um, you know, and, and like my mom apologizes to me to this day for not homeschooling me. She's like, it just wasn't a thing in California in the eighties and the nineties. Like it was the weird right. kid on the, on the, in the commune, you know, four towns over who would do that. Um, so I didn't know any different, but, but I'll tell you this, I cheated a lot. I cheated in college. I cheated through K through 12. I did very poorly and not, not like horribly. I wasn't getting like D's and F's, but like, I, I really hated English. I hated history and, and high school, senior and college, I hated economics, which is hilarious because those are like my core competencies now of like what That's I do for a living. But, but I, I really didn't like it in school. And I cheated because I was the kid that would raise my hand and say, why do I need to learn this? Or like, why is this important? Or why, why does this matter? And the teachers would always say, you know, put your hand down. This will be on the test. You know, you just memorize it for the test. And so I started to optimize for the test where I'm like, okay, if it's not about like what I'm curious about, if you're not going to let me learn what I want, like I'll just cheat. And, and so I did and um, you know, stumbled my way through school. And it was only after college that I kind of found myself and had this period of like deep, uh, like going down the rabbit hole of like the issue for me, because people have said, well, you could have like read these other books or studied these other things in school, but I had zero mental energy, right? Because it's like, you're, you're just being bombarded with all this memorization. I wasn't going to pick up a random book on something I was curious about. I was going to go play with my friends. 
So after college, when all the projects are done, the tests are over, all, all the curriculum was just done. I had time, I had mental energy, and I had curiosities, and I just started binging really fast. And um, it was funny, I had written about a few years into this, I had written about a dozen books by this point. This was 2015 or 16. And my mom bumped into my eighth grade English teacher. <laughs> and that teacher remembered me, which is either a really you know good thing or a really bad thing that your <laughs> teacher that long ago would remember you. So she's inquiring after me, blah blah blah. And, you know, my mom was like, "Oh yeah, he's, he's written like a, a twelve books, I think." And the teacher was just like, you know, like this does you not. You can write compute. a sentence, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so for me, like I've I've become a big advocate for like education reform, individualized education really trying to tailor um, pedagogy and curriculum that honors the individuality of the child and isn't this like template that everyone must learn the same things at the same time in the same way. And uh, that can be homeschooling, but it can be in a variety of other um, kind of education systems as well. And, and I just, I, I'm passionate about it because I know how poorly I did and how much I disliked it. And I know there's like bajillions of kids out there that are struggling like I was and uh, I just think we need a radical reshaping of how we school kids. Yeah. Do you mind commenting on when you stumbled upon the Prussian influence on mm. our <laughs> education system? Because your Connor's book, The Passion Driven Education, and his Tuttle Twins book called The Education Vacation, which is my daughter's favorite, um, touches on the Prussian influence that happened like mm, Horace Mann, 1850s timeframe, because early America was filled with really deep critical thinkers, which anyone would know if they read the early works from the time period, how literate and highly educated the general population was. So then something happened that shifted and we have the worst literacy, as you said, I think Dr. Mather and I would agree what we have today and what we're churning out in our government schools is not, um, is not pretty. So um, do you mind commenting on the shift that happened or how you stumbled upon that influence? So that influence for me was the late John Taylor Gatto. Uh, John was a 30 year uh, public school teacher in New York City, uh, or actually it was outside New York City, but it was in the state of New York. And towards the end of his career, he was awarded, um, actually it was New York City, he was awarded New York City Teacher of the Year by the establishment, right? This is the PTA and the Teachers Union and all these people. He, he's awarded New York City Teacher of the Year. I believe it was the very next year, if not soon after, he was awarded New York State Teacher of the Year. And, uh, and then he quit. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, the title of which is, I Quit, I Think. Uh, in which he goes on to say, I've been trying for three decades to reform from within and have enough creativity and provide enough individuality to, you know, empower these kids to discover themselves. But I'm being crushed under the weight of all these, you know, regulations and restrictions. Wow. If anyone knows of a career where I can help kids without also hurting them, please let me know. And so this was in the 80s, right as homeschooling was starting to be legalized across the country through a variety of court challenges. It was all illegal prior right. to that time in the mm -hmm. land of the free. Right. And, uh, and so John went on a public speaking tour. He wrote a bunch of books. So his book, uh, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory uh, Education, uh, I had a friend recommend that to me when I was engaged to my now wife. And I read it. What's and the guy's it just, last name again? 
Gatto, G-A-T-T-O, John Taylor Gatto. Um, Jessica, you mentioned the, that book in, in our interview, right? Yes. Yeah. You did, yeah. He's a pretty popular yeah. guy in, in homeschooling circles. Maybe not so much with a lot of the newer uh, homeschool families coming in, but the, the folks who've been around for a while have typically read one or more of his books. Um, and he passed away a couple years ago, but uh, as you point out, Jessica, you know, he did a foreword for one of my books. He, the very last thing, uh, maybe cool. fun topic for this podcast, the very last thing he wrote in his life was a chapter uh, for my book, Skip College. Wow. Uh, with, uh, launch your career without debt distractions or a degree. And oh, cool. so we invited a whole bunch of my friends to contribute uh, chapters. And this was the last thing he wrote before he passed wow. away. It's a big, big honor for me. Wow. Um, but when I, when, I went it, when I read his book as an engaged, you know, childless dude, um, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I felt like it, it was the problems he enunciated of, of his experience in the K through 12 system totally jived with my own experience right. of what I struggled with and why it was a problem and what I didn't like about it. And so I, I started reading everything he put out and, and it was a big influence on me learning about that Prussian model, the John Dewey's of the world who were these like ab, like outright socialists who called teachers, Dewey called teachers prophets of the one true God. But except Dewey was an atheist. Yeah. His God was right. literally government. He was a secular humanist socialist. And right. he, he, when he went to Prussia, he loved the orderly, militaristic, authoritarian approach to how they uh, operated this. And he brought that back and, and really started reshaping a lot of the Horace Mann, you know, common room, one room schools yeah. to be this very methodical, uh, militaristic approach, which jived very well with the Industrial Revolution and all the capitalism that was creating all these factories. For a period of time, for at least a decade, government schools, public schools, neighborhood schools, whatever you want to call them, they were called factory schools. Yeah. That was the terminology that everyone would use to describe these because it was perceived that this is training kids really well to go sit in a line at the factory and have a good job. Mm -hmm. And we have those same factory schools today, except the economy is totally different and we haven't been keeping up. So are you telling me that your kids at your home and your homeschool, you don't call that a factory school at your home? <laughs> We, we call it an entrepreneurship training ground. You call it what? <laughs> we, we call it an entrepreneurship training ground. Really? But I'll, I'll, I'll actually wow. answer it this way. We, we just put our kids in a private school for the first time after 10 years of homeschooling them. Are either of you familiar with the Acton Academy model? I've heard of the Acton Institute. Is that the same thing? Different. Yeah, different. Okay. Uh, gotcha. So this is started by Jeff Sandifer in Texas years ago and his wife, Laura. Um, he's a serial entrepreneur and he wanted to provide an extremely high quality of education to his, his, his kids and felt like the existing models weren't working. This model has since been replicated all over the country. There are privately owned Acton academies across America and it's really cool. I'll speak to my kids' experience. Um, they are not called students. They're called heroes and they don't have semesters or trimesters. They have a journey. So they are on a hero's journey. If you know about the storytelling model, we are all on a hero's journey. And you right. think of Frodo or you think of Neo or whatever big epic story. It's always, I'm weak. I can't do this. Think of me. Sure. I'm a Republican professor in Los Angeles. That's like the ultimate <laughs> Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Gotta throw the ring in Mount Doom. And, uh, and so my kids, they, are, they have a guide. The, the teachers are guides. They're not called teachers. 
Um, and so they have guides that will guide them along their own journey. The parents sit down with the guides and the hero at the beginning and identify what is your journey? What is your destination? What do you want to accomplish in the next, you know, 12 week period? And so we come up basically goal setting, but we come up with some agreements of what they're going to work for toward. And it's this highly individualized approach. My kids, when they started, I'll, I'll give you the example with my boy. They had a studio where they were going to, they, they built this new studio for the older kids, but they needed to furnish it. So they gave the kids $5,000, a budget, and they said, let's figure out how to design our studio. They went and they toured like a co-working space. They toured a few businesses, talked to the CEOs. They went on a research trip to Ikea and took all these notes. They figured out how to do spreadsheets and they started creating budgets and right. comparing and contrasting. And, and so at the end, when they, they decided what they were going to do, the, how people were spray painting the underpass, <laughs> and the, you know, not, you not those in our ideas. neck of the woods. It was yeah, diverse, more, more right, Connor? The woods. You're telling me it was What's diverse. That? It was diverse, right? <laughs> yeah, and inclusive. Okay. Right. <laughs> Just wanted to check that out. We checked that box. And, and so at the end of the day, the kids now have a fully furnished studio that they are invested in. And they learned all this like interior design and, you know, budgeting and and all this kind of stuff and so it's these project-based activities that empower them to discover real yeah. world useful things and so that it, it's i felt like of any model i know out there if i was going to put my homeschooled kids into a school this resonates the most with me it's it's very aligned with our values and uh, basically it's training kids to be critical thinkers and how to be competent people who can kind of cobble together resources and support from a variety of ways rather than passively sitting in school and being, you know, bombarded with ideas from the teacher. Connor, where did you go to college? Brigham Young University in Utah. Okay. What did you major in? So at the time, because I was on this conveyor belt, uh, K through 12, the next step was going to college. I never questioned it. I never thought differently. <laughs> yeah. So my parents, my guidance counselor, everyone, oh yeah, I applied to college. My parents both went to BYU. Um, I loved computers. So I became a web developer. I studied uh, information technology, but did as you, you may be able to, I did graduate uh, because even still, it's just like, you, you got to get the degree. And then I went to apply right. for my first job. They couldn't care less about my degree. They asked me, Hey, can you, do you know these like five code principles to actually build a website? I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and that's all, that's all they cared about. But wow. what I remember most about my college experience was a lot of classes, I would sit there on my laptop, uh, creating websites for clients in my budding freelance business on the side that I was starting to do. And I would be learning along the way, because I didn't know how to do half that stuff. I'm Googling things and I'm figuring things out. I'd be sitting in classes being taught by a professor who often, you know, had been in the profession for a long time, maybe wasn't super fresh on like the emerging technologies and so forth. And I'm learning more freelancing, sitting in class than I am getting from the, the teacher, him or herself. And, and I remember thinking like, why am I doing this? Like, this is kind of weird. I'm, I'm learning way more just like doing rather than sitting. And it's like, we don't teach kids to surf by reading a book about surfing. You got to get in the water and, you know, go do it. But sure. I, even with that observation, I still didn't take any action. I didn't think of this radical idea of just dropping out or taking a sabbatical or whatever. Um, and so it was only after college when I looked back and like, wait, my employer didn't care. And I wasted a bunch of time there and I learned all this stuff independently. <laughs> Anyways, like, why did I go? And yeah. I, I don't believe despite, you don't feel like being, you learned anything there. I, I absolutely learned stuff. Right. Okay. But, but 
it's did it's all study? did you do your homework well, I cheated, remember? I, yeah. I was still cheating. Okay, did um, you have a moral problem with cheating? I'm just trying to get a, a handle on <laughs> something's not quite adding up here, Connor, because because you're you're telling me you cheated and you were just basically a crappy student and and you didn't major in anything that was like taught critical thinking and skills and, and to love the free market. So I'm trying to figure out what where did your soul change? Did you meet a girl or something? And then she was like, started talking to you about your cheating and, or did you meet your wife there? <laughs> or did you have an encounter with an angel or something had to happen? So I'm assuming you're to... Mormon. Is that right? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, no I grew up with a bunch me, of Mormons. I'm not a Mormon, but, and, but, and Jessica's not a Mormon. We went to Biola. No. So we were Protestant Christians, but no, no but, angel for me. In in my case, yeah. it was, um, I had I had a job building websites uh, at at the school for right. uh, one of the departments, and I had a um, a boss who was you know I would say red pilled, uh, very <laughs> kind of aware of you know what's actually going on, and she would feed me articles every once in a while, and so she was like a big conduit uh, of me like realizing like I'll give you an example. Um, <laughs> I remember she sent me one article. This was during the George Bush John Kerry election what was that 2004 i want to say yep. and um right. and she sent me this article where tim russert who used to be the the guy with the meet the press the sunday morning political I show remember. he had both both of them on and he asked them both independently hey what's this idea with um oh, of course now that i bring it up i can't remember the name the university they had both been to uh, there was a secret society there yeah. and uh, um skull, yeah, and bones, it, yeah. skull and bones that's right yeah, yeah. And he asked them about skull and bones and, and they both get kind of like awkward and, and Tim's pressing is like, what's this like special number 33 or whatever, or like, Hey, have you made any like secret O's have you, you know, and he's like pushing on them and, and neither of them, you know, and so I, I never went super deep into the conspiracy stuff, but that was like an eye opening thing to me that like, wait a minute, there are people in power who are probably corrupt and maybe Republicans and Democrats, even though there's a lot of policy differences for them, it's often about power and control and less about ideology and principles. And so it was my boss. It was my grandpa who for years had been like teaching me some of this stuff, although it didn't really sink in. But he had almost been like fertilizing things a little bit so that later, you know, things would grow. Um, and then here's the kicker for me. This is like the, my red pill. I was invited uh, shortly after college to go to a screening of a new documentary called America freedom to fascism. And it was by Aaron Russo who has since passed away. And it was his attempt to decline how, or, uh, his attempt to illustrate how America had declined from this kind of grandiose foundational set of ideas into this kind of corporatocracy authoritarian, you know, mess. And, while watching this in a library room with like eight other people, you know, that I didn't know, uh, there was this gentleman in the documentary who made a lot of sense. And I never heard of him before. It was a uh, Congressman Ron Paul. And so he's talking about various things. I'm like, wow, this old guy seems like it just, he read like what he said, like really resonated with me. So I went and I, I, I Googled Ron Paul and that was like my red pill. Uh, yeah. I started learning economics and history and really, he yeah. had this recommended reading list and off I went to the races. So I credit gotcha. Ron Paul with a lot of my, you know, uh, awakening. Although I had some key people earlier on who were kind of preparing me, I might say for really 
finding my soul and my moral compass and my my principles and ideas. Okay. He also so had a book on education or homeschooling. He has Ron a good Paul did? Yeah. Yeah. He has um he has a lot of great stuff to say. I was just gonna I was gonna comment that your oh. um the frustration you shared from your educational journey is so familiar, you know, to to kids growing up frustrated in the classroom. And I could see how it would carry right over into college because you're still surrounded by peers who don't really care, who are just trying to get a degree or an A, who are kind of just going through a checklist. And it's not really following their, it's their passion. It's not really feeding their passion if they have it. And I think that's why Dr. Mather's frustrated in the classroom as well, because you have these kids, like you said, on a conveyor belt for 12 years that just actually really continue on another conveyor belt in college, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. The university wasn't always that way. And it's so frustrating um, when you're still treated just like another number. I I would love just really quick, because Connor touched on this, he um, touched on the fact that homeschooling became illegal. It it wasn't. And then it became illegal in all 50 states in the United States, which tracks with a decline. There was a loss of freedom, but it wasn't that way when it started. And I just, I find it very interesting that countries like Cuba, or we had the Soviet Union, we had um, the CCP, it's illegal to homeschool. Um, so there's no school choice. I think the bigger, I'm actually with you, Connor. I, I believe in choice. I don't think everyone needs to be a homeschooler. I think you can find a format format that suits your family well and treats the individual with respect. But I'm just, um, you know, Adolf Hitler said, he who controls the youth controls the future. And yep. I think that we kind of all agree on that. Um, and Whoa, so- did you just say you, you agree with Hitler? <laughs> That's well, the I, I that's know, what's going to be shared a million times. I know. That's what's going to get us banned. They're going to be canceled. Okay, hold on a sec. The whole that'll live in infamy for sure. The only note I notes I have so far are not a communist, and I'm just trying to add to the oh. add something to that. So he's he's not a communist, right? Yeah, communist. myself. Yeah, I'm not a communist. You got that okay. right, Jessica. <laughs> you're not a communist. I am not. And I, I mentioned to Dr. Mather before the interview that I think Connor is responsible for churning out a lot of children who will never become communists. Well, I, that, that is the hope. And <laughs> I, definitely- I, I think your books have that impact because back to the, you know, being yeah. frustrated. Tell in the me classroom. about the books, how the books, how do the kids react to the books? I think, think that Connor has picked up on and it's probably related to his parenting on just treating his kids like people <laughs> and and um, not like subjects and not in, with manipulation or coercion. He respects them enough yeah. to, to teach them the truth and say things how they are. And, and I this think encourages that, them to take responsibility. Yes. And I Ooh, think that Connor's picked up on the fact that very young children crave they are dying. They want to understand the world around them. And when you feed them with truth and good sources of information, their curiosity grows and their desire to understand more grows. And he has a podcast called The Way the World Works. And I think it's such an apt title because the children are my children. I have they range from two to 12. And all in there is a, is a desire to understand the world around them. They don't want to just be shut, you know, shush, shush off in a in a corner, um, treated like little animals, you know, just like 
they do not want to be treated like animals. I mean, I don't really know how else. I find it so disrespectful the way children are treated. And I think Connor has somehow like he's he's figured out that he can take these really difficult economics resources and history resources and things like that and make them palatable for young children. And the children are jumping out of their they're jumping up and down. Give, give an they're example. They're so happy. My children. Um, give give he an has example a book. so that people can wrap their Okay, hands so he it. has a book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's about the Federal Reserve. I mean, how many adults don't understand the Federal Reserve? And yet these children are 10-year-olds and they're reading The Creature from Jekyll Island and they're kind of gaining some insight that their parents don't even have. There you go. Oh, it's um, got pictures. Oh, I didn't yeah, know Yeah, it's really well illustrated, which his oh. history book is too. Who does the pictures? So this is my partner, Elijah, who does Elijah Stanfield. He does all the pictures. The pictures so like are here, just as important as the text sometimes for the little kids. Yeah, that's what they remember. especially in explaining ideas, right? So it sure. can illustrate Dr. the Seuss, concepts rather than just... You don't just, think of the words, you think of the picture right, right away, right? Yes. Yeah. Pictures are powerful. And there's another one with a really powerful picture, um, Crisis in Leviathan, or the Leviathan Crisis. It's based on Crisis in Leviathan. It talks about the how American government has grown over with every crisis. There okay. you go. That's Connor, the picture. I'm, Connor, I'm going to go to speaker view, Connor, and hold that up and say something. Okay. So, so what Jessica's talking about, this is one of the illustrations from our book that I've got hanging on my wall. And this is based on a book from the 80s called uh, Crisis in Leviathan, where the economist Robert Higgs went to review how government has grown, you know, World War II and other events where people got scared and the government said, we'll help you. And the government grew, but never shrunk back. And so it's always like you grow and that's the new baseline. And then you grow and that's the new baseline. So what we did with Elijah was illustrating in our story this Leviathan monster. It's kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons game kind of story. And I love this, that. That's and great. And there's this, this character that, you know, at the beginning, so we've got, you know, the, the market crash in 1929. Well, then we had the New Deal. And then we go to World War II, which leads to the military industrial complex that uh, we were warned about by Eisenhower. Then in the 70s, it was really big on cracking down on all the drugs. So we had prohibition again. 9-11, now we have surveillance you know, the bank crisis led to Wall Street bailouts, uh, 2010, all the healthcare. Now we have Obamacare and the takeover, COVID. Now we got lockdowns and like wow. every, every event precipitates yeah. the growth of government into this massive, powerful institution that is never going to shrink back down. So that's kind of that, the, the concept from that story. Yeah, that's one of my son, my son who's 12. That's one of his favorites. And um, there's another one. There's the messed up market. There's some, yeah, there's some great illustrations. And show I the Jekyll one again, uh, Connor, because you, you were small Jekyll. back then. Yeah, yeah. All right. So here's the Jekyll one. And, uh, and so this is based off of a book from G. Edward Griffin called uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which he wrote years ago talking about how at Jekyll Island, I mean, going back to my whole John Kerry, George Bush, uh, you know, secret society kind of deal uh, with Skull and Bones at Jekyll Island um, back in 1910, a bunch of politicians and bankers secretly met under code name, traveling by train in the dark of night to meet together at this club to hatch the plans that became the Federal Reserve. It was all done secretly. They pushed for it like over the Christmas break when hardly anyone was there from Congress and they could rush it through and the Federal Reserve. So he calls it in his original book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is in Georgia. 
And, uh, and so in our story, we come up with this idea of an actual creature that is going around and changing the price of money. So the, the twins kind of dream of this, you know, creature that's stealing money from people and causing all these problems because they hear their grandpa talking about the creature from Jekyll Island and they envision this monster that can just change prices um, and uh, manipulate the, the price of everything because they don't yet understand that the creature is not an actual creature. It's more just, you know, a bunch of bankers and politicians who are able to manipulate the economy as if they're pulling strings and uh, manipulating the value of our currency. And so they learn through this book. Uh, what's funny is we did this like 2015, I feel like. Yeah, 2015. And so now with inflation being such a hot topic, this book has skyrocketed in popularity because suddenly kids can now learn more easily why is you know the cost of everything going up and what's causing this and is it the greedy companies that are raising the prices of everything is it the you know supply chain that you know mysteriously has problems well no it's because they're massively like printing or digitally creating mass quantities of dollar of, of, right. of dollars of currency that devalue ours suddenly kids can now understand those ideas and talk to their parents about this real right. world big kid kind of idea there's a lot of adults that don't even understand that Absolutely. and so I was going to ask you, Jessica, you're saying it's your testimony to this committee under oath, Jessica, that <laughs> that your kids understand that? That my oldest, yeah, I would say he understands what the book provides. Mm -hmm. And I think to a point where he can retell it, um, you know, we've had some really funny conversations with adults where um, we're riding along with grandma in a car or something like that. And they say something about like, well, you wouldn't have that if you, you know, if the government didn't do this, you know, thank God that, and my son kind of can pop up and um, interact pretty well with adults uh, with some actual, some real good arguments that he's learned. I would think from the Tuttle twins, you know, that um, basically they illustrate it really well from a kid's perspective and they're kind of able to bring it home. The podcast they have does as well. Yeah. And my son can pretty much retell the ideas. Mm -hmm. One of the, um, there's one of the books, I, I can't remember if it's fate of the future or another one that the children, like it talks about the difference between coercion and persuasion. I can't remember which one that is about yeah, the that, that's fate of the future. Yeah. And I, um, my son really liked that one getting into the difference between Yes. So there you go. There's fate of the future. Connor has to talk for it to get big. So, so this is fate of the future that Jessica's talking about right here. This is, as she said, the difference between persuasion versus uh, coercion. So we talk about, you know, do you want a future in which we have this coercive monopoly control of everything, or do we want competition and persuasion? And so we got, there's a fork in the road. We got to decide because the fate of the future rests on this idea of if we're going to have, um, you know, a peaceful world where we're all just kind of collaborating and working together, or are we going to have like centralized planning where it's command and control and, you know, we're being told what to do as has happened in society's past with various, you know, authoritarian governments where they basically say, sure, you can have ice cream as long as it's all vanilla. And we kind of, you know, have this monopoly that compels you to, to do these things. So it's a, it's the contrast between persuasion and coercion that Jessica was mentioning. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that when you respect students enough to try to persuade them logically rather than just use your authoritative power to manipulate them, which I think, you know, Dr. Mather does with 
his students and I mean, he respects them enough, you know, and you respect, you know, you use logic <laughs> and you want kids to learn logic. And I, I just think, um, I think that's why your books are so refreshing and hit home and kids appreciate being treated with respect and being, giving the opportunity to learn some really complicated topics or topics that if nothing else, they intimidate adults, mostly because their own educate, their own education is lacking. And because we have such a hostile political environment that I think um, at the end of every Tuttle Twins, like children's book, there's the source it was based on. And so it encourages parents to, you know, get the, the bigger source and read it for themselves, um, kind of like Crisis in Leviathan and some others. But um, I have a story of a friend who was walking with her neighbor. I give the Tuttle Twins books out as birthday gifts. <laughs> and <laughs> and there's a friend whose child received the law um, as uh, during, during the COVID um, lockdown or pandemic, she's walking with a neighbor outside and the neighbor was really upset with my friend saying, you know, she didn't, she didn't like how she was violating the orders. Mm. And she said, you know, how dare you, you know, how dare you? And you're a Christian and it's the law. It's just the law. Like you just have to obey the orders. Uh, Jessica, and where's this at? This is in North Carolina. Oh, really? Well, wow. yeah, it's a friend who used to live here, but North Carolina. And my okay. friend was like, you need to read this book. And she gave her the Tuttle Twins book when they got back from the walk, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> which maybe you can share with us what the law is based on. And well, so the, can, I, can so, I ask you a quick question please. really quick though, because yeah. I, I yeah. still have, uh, I, I'm, I'm not some, some people listening to this are obviously way ahead of me and they're more like where Jessica is. Um, I'm at the point where I'm still amazed that you, you, you have your own books at, so you, do you get a discount for yourself? <laughs> Stupid joke. I know, but it's, anyway, it's the but, friends and family discount. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, but seriously, I do have this question of, of the age appropriateness. So what are they designed for? I know they have pictures and they're interesting and entertaining probably for probably almost any age, but you obviously have some age in mind. And then my question is the age right past that. Do you have anything that's at that level? Like for the ones that maybe were raised on this, but then they have new questions. Because that's a great have, question. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's exactly the issue we ran into. We started with these children's books. We geared them for towards kids aged roughly five to 10 years of age we started to soon realize that because these books were so different than a typical kid's book that was just teaching fluff or something unimportant, but rather these like adult ideas, we would have teenagers or preteens or the parents who were like really engaged. And so we started to see the children's books as, you know, kind of the whole family learning experience, even though it was catered more for, you know, a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. But as our early audience started to age up, they started to say like, hey, what about my teenagers? And what about, you know, my older kids? So we started creating a lot of books for teenagers as well. If uh, you guys remember from the 80s and 90s, it was really popular then this uh, choose your own adventure series of books. Oh, yeah, I love those. Yeah. So we, we have a version that we call choose your consequence. And they're similarly big fiction novels, much bigger than those other ones were always kind of short little adventures. Ours are these bigger fiction stories where the twins now, now age, I think 14 or 15 in the books um, in these, in this teen version, 
they are making these decisions, ethical decisions, political decisions, taking action, and they, they are seeing the consequence of those choices as that particular fork in the story unfolds. So we've got four books in our fiction series for teens. And then we have a series of nonfiction books as well. For example, The Tuttle Twins Guide to Logical Fallacies. And every chapter is a different logical fallacy. And we have a little cartoon that illustrates it. We have a story that kind of shows how it might work out. We give some analysis or kind of a description about it to say, okay, what happened in that story? And how does that logical fallacy play out? That, that's a fun book because, um, you know, parents both love it and hate it because they want their kids <laughs> to become critical thinkers. And they're like, wait, they can, they're pointing out all the fallacies in my, yeah. you know, conversation with them. And so it definitely has, has made kids wise up. We've got uh, a guide to cognitive biases. Um, a guide to courageous heroes where every chapter is the story of a different uh, person who did something heroic. Right now we're working on, we're going to put out hopefully in a few weeks, a book called uh, the Tuttle Twins Guide to Modern Villains. And oh. every uh, chapter is a story about a bad dude, you know, Hitler to uh, use an example, but you know, Castro and Lenin. And uh, so we threw not a wood, white supremacist. Uh, I can be if if you'd like for your audience. I definitely don't want you to D diversity of you know. <laughs> no, definitely <laughs> and, not. Uh, not. Definitely not. And we, free, uh, we and... freed the slaves, Connor. We freed the yeah. slaves. Republicans yeah. freed the slaves. Con Connor, um, you uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Because you know, what's your day like? You get up and you just start writing. Do you? I don't. I'm imagining you don't have coffee. But maybe you are. Maybe you do. Maybe you're a Jack Mormon. Um, you know, you, you, you know stay that up term. late with Good a job. cigar. You know, how do you do it? How do you do your day? Are you an early riser? Are you do you? Um... Yeah, no, definitely not that. I, 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 uh, my. So I run a think tank. I run a nonprofit that changes laws. Libertas. Don't Institute. forget to tell us about that because I want to know how did that sure. start. Yeah. So, you know, my whole day is spent uh, fighting for freedom, changing laws, working with elected officials. The books kind of grew out of this. Okay. I now manage. I mean, we have a warehouse where 30 to 40 teenagers every day are just working, packing up uh, boxes of books to ship out to people. We have like 80 plus people in our organization now. It just continues to grow. Wow. And um, so my day is extremely varied and I love it. For example, uh, in the morning, I'll be up at the Capitol negotiating with attorneys from the attorney general's office about a surveillance uh, piece of legislation that we're trying to restrict their ability to surveil people. I'll come back to the office. I'll do a phone call with the donor to, you know, cause I run a nonprofit. What state I'm is updating them on something? I come here, Utah, we're in Utah. And okay. uh, so I came to BYU and then my roots started developing. And, and uh, so I've been here since, since 99. And uh, you know, then I'll come and I'll write a little bit. I'll do some strategic planning with my team on a project we're working on. Um, I'll typically do one or two podcast interviews uh, each day. Um, back to writing some more, you know, a lot of thinking time, just trying to kind of do more planning. And so every day is very different. I juggle a lot of different projects. My wife thinks I'm insane and uh, I struggle to say no to work? things. See, that's difficult for me to answer because my work is my hobby, is yeah. my passion. So wife and kids are in bed and I'm quote unquote working. Gotcha. So, yeah. uh, gosh, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say. You don't have to. 
60 to 70, something like that. Do you take a but Sabbath? I, I, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, Are you I serious don't work about on it? Sunday. Do you, do you actually stop on a Sabbath? That's what Sabbath means, Shabbat, stop. Yeah, I, I try. I'm, I'm not perfect, but because uh, again, I so to your point about coffee, I don't drink coffee. So what's my energy source, my pick me up in the morning? Well, what I tell yeah. people is I'm a drug addict. <laughs> uh, I just don't use the stuff that Hunter Biden uses or the, you know, the crazy stuff. My drug of choice is dopamine. Everyday parents like Jessica are shooting me DMs and texts and emails oh, telling cool. me stories about how our work has impacted their family. I literally wake up in the morning and like my team has sent me, Oh, here's some of the messages that came in that you might want to see. And yeah. I get, I don't have them right now, That's but cool. I get on my desk letters in the mail from kids like fan mail, That's you know, cool. and every day I get this dopamine hit of just like, you're helping these people. You're helping these people. They're grateful. They're, you know, it having works. amazing conversations. Yeah. Wow. And it's, it's addicting. So yeah. that's what motivates me. And, uh, you know, I, I know what good this has done for so many families, but I know how many families we haven't yet reached. And right. so a lot of what I do is marketing. Struggle I spend a lot real. of time thinking about marketing to go reach and teach more families. Is uh, that what motivated the American history book? You just figured you got to tackle revisionist history and now or what? <laughs> okay. The short, short version of that story is um, I had a theory that American history is being taught very poorly in K through 12 schools, mostly for my own you know, biased experience. But I bought uh, like a dozen history books, civics, you know, um, uh, social studies books for like sixth to ninth grade. And our team is like doing this analysis, kind of how do they talk about this? How do they talk about that? And the long and short of it is uh, we were very impressed at how thorough these books were with superficial factoids, you know, names and dates and which battle happened where and what the cloud formations were that day. And, you know, who had indigestion from the hardtack they ate in Valley <laughs> Forge and like all the random minutia that might impress people at parties. But in the back of my mind was this quote, we all know those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. The problem that we came away from these books with is none of these books, none of them taught kids to learn from the past. Instead, they all simply taught kids about the past. It's like we're walking kids to this museum of American history and it's like, oh, look, they used to shoot guns like that. And look at this cannonball and look, you know, okay, let's go to the cafeteria time for lunch. It's this very passive review of history. So no wonder kids today are not uh, are, are disconnected from those lessons because they are not taught history in a way to help them extract those ideas and values and philosophies and determine how they can apply those to our world today. So after that textbook review, that's when we said, all right, we got to do something about this. Uh, we created a, a book called America's History. Uh, it's a 240 page story of early American history, all through storytelling, not dry textbook facts. It's all just a big fun story. There you go. Jessica's yeah, got it. Okay. So along the way, uh, kids are taught the ideas of the past and then I, examples of how they apply to our world today. And that's volume one of what we hope will be a four volume series. Wow. Say something, Jessica, and hold that up. So this is the new Tuttle Twins book um, on American history. And it uses the characters that are familiar to Tuttle Twins fans, because when I started reading it, my daughter said, oh, Fred, is it Fred? Is that his name? I know yep, him. Yep. He's the neighbor in the other Tuttle Twins books. And she said, I know him. And I kind of <laughs> laughed. Um, so it's the same illustrator. So there's a, um, 
One thing it excels at is geography, constantly using geography, which should always be used when you're teaching history, in my opinion, Um, and using kind of story form to trace ideas and impacts of ideas on history. Um, One thing I love, I can't believe you included it, (laughs) was a comment on the Milgram experiments. Oh. I, that topic Dr. Bather, are you familiar with the Milgram experiment after World War II? It's like kind of looking for the, um, it was a psychologist who basically wanted to assess, I mean, it assesses people being willing to hurt their fellow man. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by fo- following orders. Right. You know? right and when sure. they were quizzed afterwards, 65% or something like that were yeah. willing to injure their fellow man because they were, because we were told to do it. And um, that topic came yeah, up. They didn't me. have the courage to just disobey they knew it was wrong. Yeah. They yeah. Knew it was yeah. wrong, but they wanted to fit in. Yeah. 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 And so, um, because so many people ask that just question, like wearing masks, a lot of people wore masks. They, they know it's not doing anything, but they want to fit in the power to the, the yes. pressure to fit in is enormous. And I think that that explains all sorts of horrors in America, in not only American history, but right. world history. Look at right. North yep. Korea. I mean, that place exists, you yeah. know, Cuba, places like this. Yeah. And I, I think that that topic came up for me so much during the yeah. pandemic because of p- behavior by people I knew and loved or just strangers in the supermarket, you know, in the store, the grocery store that shocked me. I was just so shocked. And I just kept coming back to like, well, people were shocked. I mean, people asked the same question of Nazi Germany, like how could you, or how could you go along or how could you turn in a neighbor that was hiding someone? Mm -hmm. And yet people did. And so anyway, um, I, that I loved that you included that in this book because I, um, you're again, you're kind of reaching back on big ideas and their influence rather than just saying this happened in Nazi Germany or right. this, you know. And so, um, I, Con- I really Con- are you are you ready for? I know you got a hard stop. Do you, do you are you ready for some like really fast questions? Lightning round. Let's do it. Okay. How do you feel about the Second Amendment? Uh, big, big supporter. I own a lot of guns and, uh, I, I think, uh, it's far more about just the militia. I I think it's as much about warting tyrannical government as it is for hunting or, uh, repelling a home invader. Um, I, I think it's a great equalizer for people that don't have power to make sure that they can uh, keep authority in check. Now you're obviously pro reading do you think there's any place to go to college for people going to college 100 percent. despite <laughs> the provocative title of my book skip college the the main thesis is if you are going to go to college do it intentionally with eyes wide open have a plan take some mm-hmm. time beforehand to go discover yourself and figure out what you want to do go job shadow and apprentice and do things to figure out, do you want to go dedicate four years of your life to obtain this degree? Too many people go get the degree, get into the profession and realize I don't like this. <laughs> so it's a call yeah. for intentionality more than it is for just an absolute uh, call to, to avoid college entirely. How did you get the funding initially for your think tank? That's not something that um, just grows on trees, right? I would call that Providence. Uh, I was engaged in a variety of political stunts, putting up billboards, uh, 
I wrote my first book. I was doing this stuff. And there was a gentleman who um, saw the billboards, read my book. And he's like, who's this guy? You know, this Connor guy, I need to meet him. Uh, meanwhile, I had a friend telling me about this guy uh, saying, hey, I know you have this like think tank idea. You should go talk to him. He had just sold his business to Adobe, uh, became, you know, very wealthy. And, um, and so we finally connected, we went to lunch, I pitched him on kind of being my, my angel investor, if you will. Um, he gave me just a tiny bit of money, like basically a marketing budget to see if I could do something with it, like to see what I would do with it. Um, it was a nights and weekends project for me. I was a full-time web developer at the time. And, uh, but I, I did enough impressive stuff with the marketing budget that that gave him the confidence to invest in me. Uh, or invest in the organization enough where I could take a big pay cut, <laughs> uh, move over, do this full time and start to grow it. Um, and so okay. he's been our chairman of the board ever since. And I owe him as with John Taylor Gatto and Ron Paul and some of these key figures in my life, a huge debt of gratitude for leading me down wow. this path. There's a, there's a spider outside. That's a full-time web developer too. I've noticed. So <laughs> keeps moving. Wow. Dumb, dumb. Okay. In case somebody misunderstands the, the white supremacist comment earlier, uh, how do you really feel about that? Like, honestly, um, I, I think sorry to put uh, you on the spot like that, but no, you're fine. I, I think racism is, is horrible, uh, as with ageism and sexism. I, I, I have my beard. Uh, I started growing a beard eight years ago, mostly because I looked extremely young for my, uh, for my age. In high school, I was bullied significantly. I remember very little of you my high look school experience. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, I was stuffed in trash cans. I was picked oh, on wow. a lot and oh, it was wow. very unpleasant. Um, so I've always had this soft spot for the little guy and for the underdog because I was one. Um, uh, I'll give you a ex very quick example in Utah, like Utah has this polygamous history, but now polygamists are kind of pushed, uh, swept under the rug, pushed into the shadows. Right. Um, my whole political career, if you will, got started because of polygamists of which I am not one. Uh, <laughs> but when Warren Jeff's raid or compound was raided like 15 years ago, if you remember this, the yearning for Zion ranch. And there was a false tip that was made. Um, and based on that false tip, cops swooped in helicopters, tanks, you know, guns a blazing. They took over 400 kids away from their moms. Uh, I, I call it legal kidnapping. I don't know what, and they put them in the foster care system rampant oh. with, you know, sexual abuse and drugs and all kinds of problems. Mm. Um, I was a newlywed up here in Utah, seeing this on the news. I was horrified. The government yeah. would steal all these kids from their moms. Right, I had right. no clue what to do. I started an online petition back before that was a, a you know, common thing nowadays. Um, garnered over a thousand signatures. I got on the TV. I was interviewed for the news. That was my first news interview. My blog where I was blogging at the time was flooded with comments from polygamists or polygamist sympathizers, or even like civil liberties proponents who were concerned. Like I was more about the civil liberties aspect and all these people just saying, thank you. Thank you for standing up. Thank you for doing so. And no, no one's speaking out for these people or no one's speaking up for us. That was my first taste of fighting for the underdog. I always had that kind of sympathy because I was picked on um, yeah. as a young looking guy. Um, so I grew a beard. So I would look five years older than I actually uh, you know, looked like and set about to go change the world, start a think tank and uh, change a lot of these laws. So the back to your question about white supremacy, I think racism is horrible. 
Um, I think all these isms where we attack people based on things that they can't control. I mean, like wokeism, I think is stupid. I'm going to make fun of you all day long if you're woke, because that's something you can control. But these <laughs> innate characteristics that are just, you know, part of our, you know, genetics and so forth, like, I, I think it's very improper to attack people for something that is just who they are. Okay, Jessica, you get the last word. Oh, I've said enough this interview. I mean, no. I just, um, You're the mom. well, thanks for creating, you know, filling a void and creating material that definitely resonates with a variety of ages. I think you're educating children and adults at the same time. It's one of the reasons that home education is so great is because if the parents involved, you're redeeming two generations of education at the same time. And so I think the Tuttle Twins books and materials and podcasts um, and the new American history book, you know, have the power to do that, to redeem two generations of education at the same time. And I'm, I definitely enjoy them. So I appreciate your hard work. Thank you both. I appreciate it. And we'll keep at it. Yeah. Okay, Connor. Uh, Jessica, stay on a little bit and we'll, we'll, you know, talk Chat. about our reaction. Thanks, All right, Connor. Connor. Awesome. Thank you guys. Have a great one. See ya. Well, what'd you think? Well, we're we still recording. We're still recording. So no cuss words or anything like that. <laughs> Are we going to keep recording? Is this yeah, right? let's keep recording. Let's oh, have okay. our thoughts. Let's have our thoughts. Yeah. Well, Not we put you on the spot, but yeah. You know. Okay. Well, we bounced around a lot. I'm sorry. You know, I, I, no, we, so we had a hard stop, so we're not used to that. We wanted to make sure that I wanted to press into because I, I saw he was talking a lot and I thought, OK, he's doing a lot of these podcasts and I, I want to make sure I get a non canned answer from him at some point uh, yeah. as much as I can. Well, I, yeah, I appreciate, I know he has a lot more to share. So it was, yeah. um, it was, it, we were trying to fit a lot into a short amount of time. Also yeah. his, he actually has such a variety of, uh, material that he's written that there's a lot of different mm -hmm. topics, you know, that we could have covered. So I was kind of jumping around because they really tackle, like he said, economic yeah. history. I forgot know. to ask him when I, I, I was going to ask him how he come up with the name Tut Tuttle twin, but. There is yeah. a, um, it's probably an explanation somewhere. Yeah, there is a reason for that. And I, and then, um, I wanted to ask him how much money he has in his bank account. That was the last <laughs> question I was going to ask. I am fascinated by how uh, productive he is as far as writing yeah. goes. They definitely are very productive. And his same illustrator works on a TV show, a TV series that's a, now there's an animated show. Um, and they travel to different time periods in like a time machine and um, can see the impacts of certain government policies on different or in different countries, um, mm. which my kids enjoy. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I we never got to unpack the fact that I don't like Adolf Hitler, even though I quoted him. <laughs> And I was just trying to. Ben, you, you guys both stuck your foot in your mouth. Man, I was funny. just trying to I, touch I, on the fact. I think it was Adolf Hitler. And I agree with him. <laughs> well, he's right in the sense that he knew well, that sure. whoever yeah. controlled the youth controlled the future. And so he made it illegal yeah. For anyone to teach children in Germany, you know, no one could teach other than the state. And that's what I was trying to get to. Well, and in, in yeah, China, he was probably right about a lot of things. I mean, he did. Well, take yeah, over, it, it, he was right about how to take over things. Yeah, it worked. Right. He manipulated yeah. a whole he got he got people to 
do the most heinous things that they would have never imagined they could have done to their fellow man. Mm -hmm. And in China right now, it's illegal to educate your own children. It's illegal to teach them religion. You know, it's illegal in Cuba to home educate your children. And I wanted to talk about why do you think that is, you know, I mean, I think there's a pretty obvious reason when the state has control of the education system, they can manipulate the minds of the young to um right to do what they want and i mean you see that every day in the classroom and i yeah. just um one of the reasons that school choice is so important is that it is to allow for some diversity of thought and stretching that isn't just say yes to whatever um the masses say or the peers say or the government says you know right so i mean you're you were serious when you said that your kids react positively to these books. They, they learn absolutely things yes. that they're supposed to learn. Yeah. And you know, what's Here's an example. He has a book called, um, I mean, it's something about show business. I might be able to find it, but, but it's the spectacular something show business. It's a Tuttle twins. It was, it's another one of my son's favorites. And, um, we discovered the Tuttle twins, you know, um, in their early years, but, um, and so we've been fans for a while, but it talks about, it follows these twins, Emily and Ethan Tuttle on this adventure um, to start a business. Um, I think their grandma gives them a little startup money or something like that. And they create a little theater. And my kids were so inspired by reading that darn show business book. They wanted to start a business the next day. And I was, to be honest, I was a little annoyed at how eager they were because they kept bugging me about it, <laughs> but they, um, and I, I think that the, I think that the Tuttle twins provide even like a worksheet or a workbook that goes along with it. So it's like, you know, what items do you need? What, how much do you need to invest? Do you need some loan money to start? You know, what are you going to sell? What's your overhead going to, you know, and um and so when we had a junior market this last year in our city it's called lemonade day it happens in a variety of cities and states and it's basically where you know young children have an opportunity to be entrepreneurs for a day um, my kids jumped at the opportunity oh, and wow. you know they um wow. they definitely considered how much they didn't want to invest a lot of money they knew mm. they had to have some marketing and um and in, you know, one rainy day, they made over a hundred bucks. They were really what? excited wow. with like no invested with $15 invested. So, um, were you like uh, the communist government that came in and said, no, it's mine. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, yeah, yeah. Thankfully that didn't happen that day. They were not taxed and they, yeah. they have strong opinions probably oh, about that um, too early. Yeah. George likes to sneak their ice cream and say taxes and take a big, <laughs> their first bite, every dessert they have just to show them the pain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. that that's appropriate at some point Yeah, I mean, to really, but yeah, the way you do it, it would have to be believable, you know, yeah. because otherwise they just think you're a jerk, you know, because yeah. they know you don't have to do that. So. Right. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. You don't need to be mean about it, but, but you know, if you could do it in a way where they get it, they, yeah. cause a lot of people think of taxes as the government doesn't really have a choice or they have to, it's, right. they, they just have no choice. They need right. the money. And it's like, if you can break people of that BS way of thinking like, no, no, this is all a choice. This mm -hmm. is all a choice, right. For lawmakers mm -hmm. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be this big. Yeah. 
No, it doesn't have to be this. It doesn't have to be structured this way. There's lots of different ways you could structure it. Mm -hmm. It's structured this way because people are not, don't really know what they're doing. That's right. So then when they get that, then they're kind of, they might have the same reaction as when mom accidentally on purpose takes 30% of their right ice cream. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, no, I think my, I can't remember what resource it was that really hit it home for Josiah, but I just remember my son conversing with adults about taxes and I was pretty impressed by how he handled it. And I figured he kind of had a more mature understanding of taxes than maybe the adult he was talking to. But, um, you know, obviously we all have a lot to learn and so does he, but I do appreciate good resources. You know, you you regularly talk about curiosity. I feel like with your guests on your podcast and the fact that you're a curious person and you tend to yeah, have really curious people on who, yeah. you know, clearly find Otherwise a way to, yeah, well, and they find a way to feed their appetites for more information or whatever their passion is. Right. And I just, I'm convinced that children naturally have that to understand the world mm-hmm. and I do think it gets injured in typical factory style classrooms and it's hard to recover, but I think, you know, um, I think it grows when you, when they have natural questions to understand and you feed it with good resources, you can grow it and you can keep it growing and it can grow in adulthood in college or outside of it, you know? Um, but yeah, they definitely want to understand the world for, for sure. You know, it looks like I recognize a book behind you, but I'm, did we talk about this last time? Did I, did I see a book? Do you yeah, have integrative probably. theology? Yes. Behind? <laughs> yeah. Good eye. Yeah. I was like, what you have Gordon Lewis and Bruce Demarest integrative theology behind you. Yes. Did I mention that last time? Yes, you did. Cause okay. you have such a good eye consistently oh a good eye. <laughs> well, well, I have a bad memory apparently. No. Um, how no, old are I mean, your kids? Uh, they're two. Oh, how old are they? <laughs> two, <laughs> five, 10 and 12. <laughs> okay. I don't feel so bad now. Yeah. Um, two, five, 10 and 12. I okay. Can't even so the, these books are perfect for them then. Absolutely. They were designed. They yeah. Were. I was, I am, I'm, I'm concerned. I think it's actually the mark of a, a good children's book that it's timeless. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there, there, there is a place for like the Thomas souls, you know, and the yeah. Walter Williams and the Hayek's and the, mm-hmm. the Bastiat's and, um, you know, on and on James Buchanan. Yeah. yeah. I actually bought Bastiat's book after a Tuttle twins read with my kids because mm-hmm. I, there's so many sources I had just never happened upon in my education. Do you you have that book, the law? Yeah. The law. It's really, it's a pretty quick read. It's a pretty good book actually. Yeah. Yeah, it is. There's just, there's a lot of, um, what's another one he taught. Oh, my next one will probably probably be the anatomy of the state by Rothbard, but I haven't done that. Right. I haven't done that one, but they definitely, he, um, I do think that the books probably encourage parents to dive into some of these topics that they don't know anything about um, is my guess, you know? Yeah. That's Um, a good idea. If nothing else, it definitely feeds the curious child. I kind of wanted to do this interview where I would have like a hunting hat on and like, just (laughs) at just 
it, it turns out I'm just a total second amendment guy. And all I want to do <laughs> is talk about that. And I'm like, you know, it looks like I'm dipping. Oh gosh. And then every, every once in a while I'm like, but you have guns though. Right. Yeah. That would but be how entertaining. Much guns and ammo you. do you have? I mean, okay. The books. Yeah. But, but how much, how many of them are about guns? <laughs> you know what I mean? But oh, he you know what you would like him one of the books. I mean, he talks about the state's monopoly on violence, I think, is that's how he puts it. Or is that is that how we put it? Like um, having a monopoly yeah. on, on violence. Yeah. Like on um, enforcement or, you know, and weapons, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you would completely what, agree. What book is that? Do you remember? Maybe it's fate of the future that we talked about it may have been fate of the future coercion how many, how many books total are we talking about um i he think has? he said they have 12 little yeah i think he said 12 i don't have the whole stack in front of me so i couldn't um yeah i could be wrong his are you're familiar with jordan peterson I, I don't last, know him personally, but yeah. Oh, well, his latest, he just came out, the Tuttle Twins, they just made a new one based on Jordan Peterson's book, and it's 12 Rules. It's based on his 12 Rules How for cool. Life. Well, hold so, on, let me, see, these let, are pretty let me make easy. you big here. Okay. Yeah, 12 Rules Boot Camp. And the rules, it kind of, it's telling the kids, tell the truth, communicate precisely, learn from others, take care of yourself, don't compare yourself to others, pause to appreciate take control of myself before taking on the world, do meaningful things, don't be afraid to fail, keep good company, act like my best self and bring honor to my family. And it's, um, this is like having a messy room, you know, oh, that's cool. kind, of, kind of like clean your room first before mm -hmm. you go take on the world. And uh, oh, good idea. Um, and it's, it's, they're entertaining. They're definitely mm -hmm. entertaining for my children's ages and the illustrations are good and they, but they tackle really meaningful ideas. And I think I'm like glad they have the black cop, uh, arresting the white guy. That was I, very, very smart. I appreciate that too, because sometimes our illustrations really fail to capture yeah. reality sometimes. Be careful. You know? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. I mean, illustrations can be really swayed one way or something like that, but, um, yeah, so they, they had on, eyeballs on that. Someone yeah. had good eyeballs on that one. Yeah. yeah. They have in the education vacation, which is my 10 year old daughter's favorite. They take a trip to Germany and, um, I think they get yelled at by a police officer in Germany and in German. And then they, they somehow weave in the fact that kindergarten, our, our word for kindergarten is a German it's a German word. It's like garden of children or something like that. And it, it, it hints at the influence of the Prussian model, which was a very militant, very state first state is the highest um, influence on education and how that came to America, because there's a major difference between early American thinking and obviously today. And you, you kind of, you can't really say that compulsory schooling has saved the children. You know what I mean? <laughs> Even children with disadvantages, you cannot say because you have people like, um, you have people like Frederick Douglass and his narrative of a slave. His writing is so amazing. He yeah. taught himself to read when he realized why it was illegal to teach a slave how to read, mm. that he had the power to overcome if he could read. 
and share ideas if he could read and write and he his if you read his narrative you're it is so beautiful and so beautifully written you're like um, and he escaped slavery and he changed, you know, he ended up meeting with presidents. I mean, his yeah. story. So, so you just, you can't even argue that oppression, even which has so right. many horrors, yeah. of course, and disadvantages, so many right. disadvantages in this world, so much inequality. I wouldn't argue there isn't, but yeah. you just can't say that our government system has lifted the people up. You know what I right. mean? Right. 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 So our government system hasn't rescued the little man, which is like what Connor's saying, the little guy, you know, and I think that that's where we probably all agree. Yeah. I mean, if that was the criticism of our involvement in Vietnam, uh, I would say it's done a worse job than we did in Vietnam because per cop per, per dollar, it's, it's just, it's a failure. Right. It'd be like South Vietnam is communist. Right. <laughs> that's that's what I mean. I I'm teaching uh, right now at Azusa Pacific University, and um, I don't normally like to talk about my experiences with current students. I usually wait until they're former okay. students. But I had a class full of upperclassmen, men and women, young people, who didn't. They were majors. They're they're political science majors. They did not know what the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Not a single person knew what the Lincoln-Douglas debates were. And this is and, at, that's their, and that's their specialty. Yes, and they wouldn't have known after uh, after that class had I not brought it up. I mean, it just I'm so glad I was there, you know, kind yeah. of thing. And and some of them are having a hard time with just the concept that the Bill of Rights limits the government. Not, right. not the individual. <laughs> and, is that not shocking to you? Well, it is. It is. And it should be. And, and, and it's, it is what I say. It's shocking. It's, it's understandable just in this respect that uh, Jessica, when I was going through my political science class at Wayland Baptist university, which was held on, uh, Marine Corps base Kaneohe, mm-hmm. Kaneohe in uh, Oahu. I was on this base t- taking this government class <clears throat> and our government textbook, the section on the second amendment was so embarrassing. I mean, but it was a standard textbook. Right. I think it was like two paragraphs or something like that. And it was, it was a collective rights interpretation of the second amendment wow. with no argument whatsoever. It was just asserting it. And um, to, to think that there would be no textual argument, there would be no uh, historical development of that. That was Stevens' view in the Heller decision. And Stevens was Republican appointed judge. He was appointed by Ford. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote the it was five to four in the in the major Second Amendment decision in 2008. It was five to four. And two of the four were Republican judges. And so you had the five that were Republican. There was not a single Democrat on the, on the right side of that. And there still isn't um, just like abortion right now. Anyway, they used to, there used to be Democrats that were on the right side of that, but, but um, so 
they, the, you had a Supreme Court justice along with Ginsburg, Souter, Breyer. Mm-hmm. And so Stevens, Ginsburg, Souter, Breyer. Souter was Republican appointed and Stevens was as well. Ginsburg and Breyer were both Democrats. So you had four people on the individual rejecting an individual rights interpretation of one of the bills of rights, you know, you know, and and it was like, so when you think of people that can go through college and law school and, and then that's their view, right. You know, you know, it's like, I guess I can understand how maybe my students would be a little screwed up on that. Yeah, you're right. No kidding. They've practiced law. They've spent how much right. money? They've passed a bar. You yeah. know, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine the, the right of the people? Here's a textual argument in case people need it. The right of the people to keep and bear arms. Yes, there's the, the militia clause, which is the prefatory clause. And then there's the operative clause, which is the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. That's a complete sentence. Mm-hmm. That's the only complete sentence. That's an de- independent clause in the mm-hmm. Second Amendment. There's a dependent. Cl- there's two dependent clauses. The mm-hmm. the, the security of a free state. Uh, sorry. Um, the a well-regulated militia, comma mm-hmm. being necessary to the security of a free state, comma two dependent clauses. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, the right of the people to keep and bear arms has the word right in it and has the word the uh, of the people in it and um the word the words of the people is in the first amendment mm-hmm. and that's clearly an individual right in the first amendment mm-hmm. right right of the people to petition the government and i i mean i had this jessica i had this discussion with one of my students and i'm teaching this course called the american founding okay mm-hmm. We're what talking about the second to teach. How great. Yeah. Yeah. I, That's so great I'm, I'm having them read Stephen Hallbrook's. That's so great. Called uh, he's actually the author of this book right yeah. here, uh, right here. That's on the screen. Uh, Gun control and third Reich. I had Stephen Hallbrook come on and talk about that book on the podcast back in April. I think it was may maybe. And um, anyway, I have them reading the founder's second amendment for my class on the American founding. And so they're getting cured of whatever mistakes or misunderstandings. But I asked somebody in the class um, that uh, what the direct object of petition was in the First Amendment. And I don't think the student understood the question. No, they didn't know direct object was a a part of speech. Yeah, she tried (laughs) like five times. And I finally said, it's the government. You're yeah. petitioning the government. That that means that the people and the government are not the same thing. Yeah. And that's just a textual argument. Yeah. So why would all of a sudden the Second Amendment use the same phrase, the people, and it means the government all of a sudden? And then the Fourth Amendment, the, the people occurs. The right to be secure in uh, our papers and, and, and houses and stuff like that um, from unreasonable searches and seizures. Well, who's doing the searches and the seizures? Right. It's it's the government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so the people and the government are not the same thing. That's the same thing in co- quartering troops in the home in the Third Amendment. Mm-hmm. We never talk about the Third Amendment, but it's very oh. interesting. It's right after yeah, the Second is. Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, who's do, who would be doing the quartering of troops in, in a private home? Right. It would be the right. government. 
And, and so you start to see a pattern, you know, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. which, who would, what party would reject, uh, would, would prevent you from having a jury trial or from having right. the assistance of counsel or the ability to confront your witnesses against you? Um, uh, the, it sounds to me like you have to teach an English class while uh, teaching the American founding, because yeah. I really think that the students lack the English or the oh, parts of speech understanding to even understand dependent clause, independent clause, direct object. I don't think your yeah. students generally have that. Well, they have their computers out in class, which bothers me. Yeah. And ordinarily I would have a, a firm grasp on that and say no on that. Mm -hmm. But because I got hired at the last minute to teach these classes, this class on Congress and the, and these are classes I haven't taught before. So I was scrambling. Mm -hmm. And so I was basically telling them what the books are the first day. Yeah. And I didn't have a chance to get them through the bookstore, like regular books where they would have them in their hands, like a book. So they were getting, um, you know, they were getting electronic books. Yeah, and so yeah. therefore, as soon as I did that, I had to let them have computers, but I don't think they realized that their computers are distracting because they don't see what I see. And what right. I see is a bunch of distracted students. And it's no surprise to me at all when they can't answer my question because mm -hmm. I see the distraction and I, I don't think they, I don't think they see it. They don't see it yeah. at all, but, uh, but you have their wheels turning. So they're reading, they're reading some good books. That's exciting. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. You know, the, and that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. I mean, because if you really get a handle on the American founding, it, or if you immerse yourself in it or in some of those documents, then you look at today and you're like, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, so I would, I mean, that's a great class to teach. I'm having a lot of fun. That's good. I mean, the gun control in the I third, I just right? worry about it. Yeah. Oh, you, what do you worry about? Well, I worry about kids these days to put, if yeah. I can put it that way. And I, I worry that um, I'm, I worry about how powerless I feel to correct massive problems when right. I see them, right. like even generating a, a learning environment where they are genuinely challenged and yeah. uh, not, not in a good, bad way, but in a way where they feel like they respond um, and they learn, I mean, they're transformed. Yeah. Cause and, that's what you want, obviously. Yeah. yeah. You were about to say something else. Well, no, I mean, I, I appreciate your concern. Yeah. And I can see why you have it. And I, mm -hmm. and that, which is why I can see why Connor's made the books he's made, you know, yeah. um, to address that. Uh, I, I was just going to say, cause I'm looking at that title, the gun control it right. to me, it's in the Third Reich, it's an important topic. It's similar to the schooling one that I brought up. And it's because when you have the, when the state has the monopoly on the guns, when the state has the monopoly on the education, yeah, you can see how easy it is to disable the people, like truly yep. disable the children That's a problem. and disable the adults. Yeah. Um, and they, right now, it feels like they are, <laughs> you know, like we've, <laughs> We've taken, you know, but um, it'd be even worse if, if, if the average American was disarmed, it would be yes. even worse. 
Oh yeah. And you can see it in other countries, you know, and you can see where it's headed. It's yeah. so funny that people assume that if their, their neighbor doesn't have a gun, they're safer as long as the state has control of the guns. It's so odd to me that it people, it, the uh, same people uh, throwing a fit about the George Floyd tragic, his tragic death, right. his tragic death at the hands of a police officer, which is yes. a, um, an officer a, of the a, law. Yeah, which yes. is a government official. I mean, yes, a government that, official. When I saw that, it was the government sitting on the individual. Yes. And I don't understand why people don't see that. Right. I mean, they, they can see, see the, the horror there and yet somehow only trust the government to have so to be armed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and they're then, talking about defunding the police. Well, you're on. I like the word defund. Mm -hmm. And I and 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 you're almost there. Right. When you talk about, uh, you know, maybe let's clarify. Is this the government you're talking about? Oh, OK. It's right. the government. Oh, okay. oh well, yeah. Well, concept. I know. That's I thought really we were white supremacists just yeah. a few days ago because <laughs> Mitt Romney said 47 percent, you know, in 2012. Uh, and if you don't remember that, a lot of people don't remember that, but. I mean, he was excoriated because he said that 47% of people don't pay taxes. And so he all of a sudden was a racist and oh, uh, you know, people were, it's like they went from that. And then when Trump got elected, um, Mitt Romney was a model citizen. All of a sudden he was an Eagle scout and we, we miss Mitt Romney. Well, yeah, I, I remember when Mitt Romney was winning, I was possibly going to win. And, um, there, there was shrieks from, from hell, you know, every little thing he said was criticized, you know, right. binders. I think he said something about having binders or maybe that was John McCain. I can't remember, but all I know is it just shows, it goes to show you how easily manipulated people are, whatever the news hypes up or whatever is hyped up on social media, every, you know, people just, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. Just and that's ahead. what that's what this guy Connor is trying to prevent. He's trying to create little humans and help you create little humans that grow up into bigger humans that are not easily manipulated like yes. that. Yes. And they can see through stuff. Yes. And they it's think worth for themselves. It. And it it's worth it, even if they're saying, hey, that's an appeal to emotion, mom, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Or an appeal to pity. Um, you know, I haven't read his fallacy book or whatever he alluded to, but at the end of the American history book, they touch on propaganda. And um, I, I've used other books with, you know, for that with my children to spot some um, and they, and now they notice it, you know, in marketing or commercials, you know, or fear-based, you know, appealing to fear. And um, the government does that a lot, to be honest, you know, so. Right. Um, but the news is really good at stirring up fear as well. And so no time like the present to study some of that. Well, it's also about forming character that's curious, right. you know, and I think that if you are able to form that in your kids, definitely not squelch it, but encourage it, mm -hmm. then, you know, if the professor asks you, what is the direct object of petition? Mm-hmm then you're, you're going to have a question like, yeah, what is, I don't know it is. So what is it? And right. I, now that's my question. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that in students very often. 
I, I know, don't and see I, that where they're like, yeah, is it in it? You know what? I got to freaking learn this. I got to know. I got to know the answer to this. I, I want to know. Yeah. Yeah. And how I do mean, you get that? How do you get that in your kids? You know, I mean, obviously I'm a super fan of classical education and it's because they teach all the, the basic fundamentals at a young age and even the parts of speech and things like that. So that when they're an older age, they're ready for more abstract ideas and wrestling they're not being bored with dates and names because they already mastered the names and dates when they were young, when they love to memorize and repeat and they're little sponges and parrots. And so I, I, I don't see dates and names as meaningless. I think they're super and critical. Yeah, I do too. To, I think they're super critical. In fact, I think my kids enjoyed the America's history book that the Tuttle twins have because they already have a mastery of names and dates and geography that they've memorized because of the classical method. So that when they read this story, they already, they know the places and names and dates they're talking about. And they have like a general timeline in their head for when the Magna Carta happened and then that, you know, and subsequent um, influences. So they can kind of appreciate anyway, all yeah. that to say, I, I think that you need to give the fundamentals at a young age, like the parts of speech, you know, my kids learn how to diagram sentences. And, um, and I think you master a lot of those and these timelines and all of this. And so that when they're reaching you, they can wrestle with really weighty ideas with an expert, you know, someone who's read a lot more than they have. Um, and they can dialogue with it. I do think kids like, yeah, I don't, I do think that the modern education system, unfortunately, um, kind of kills the individual so that they don't know themselves. And then they're like, I need to go find myself. So I know what I want to study. I actually think if you were outside that system, you probably already know yourself before you reach college, because um, hmm. you haven't been just herded along like animals. <laughs> I don't, you know, yeah. just, and, and then, and then forced to just, it's all about the checklist to get the A. Right. So right. it's all meaningless. It's just, I just have to jump through the hoops to get the A, to get yeah. the degree, to get the diploma. Right. Yep. And it's robbed children of the joy of learning. And it is really yeah. l learning is a joyous thing. Like yeah. you said, like you said, you would be asking yourself, well, what is the direct object? Why don't I know that? I should right. know that, which yeah. is how I, would I be feel. embarrassed if I didn't yeah. know it. which is how I feel when I get to the end of the Tuttle Twins books. And it says, this is based on the anatomy of the state by Murray yeah. Rothbard or something. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, why haven't I read that? I need right. to go read it. Yeah. So I think, you know, yeah. feeding kids good resources like you're doing in your class. But, um, I, I do think that unfortunately yeah. 12 years mm. of of reinforcing that <laughs> learning is meaningless yeah. and just yeah. a hoop I have to jump through for a test, for a grade, for a diploma yeah. has, has really just killed right. true learning or the joy yeah. of it. I, I think it yeah. can be reawakened, you know, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, our future depends on it. Yeah, I agree. I think the types of the types of problems that we have are not going to just go away mm -hmm. and they're not going to stay the same size they're going to get right. worse right unless we have a new generation of of kids that are curious right that are uh individualized learners that take responsibility for themselves and what they know in the world mm -hmm. and, and otherwise it's all lost yeah 
And I do think that they need people pointing them in the direction of good resources, you know, sure. and of, um, I had that with, uh, with Gordon Lewis, the author of integrative theology. He was yeah, my mentor when I was in high school. What, in high school. I know what a gift from God. Truly. He was, he was a mentor of mine in high school. And then I later had him as a professor Yeah. in graduate school. That's pretty amazing. And he, um, I, but I was a very curious kid. I mean, that's why I came to his house. You know, mm -hmm. he, he invited us, me and my friend, Robbie, Robbie Blanks from uh, old Chatfield High School there in Jefferson County, Littleton, Colorado. And we, uh, we went to his uh, home there and there was books. I'd never seen a home like this, Jessica. Mm -hmm. It was small. It was not a big place. I think it was probably a three bedroom uh, town home. Mm -hmm. It might've been four bedroom, but, but it was you know, had a two car garage, but it was an attached, you know, they were attached to each other. Mm -hmm. my, my guess is it was, I don't, I don't know how big it was. I know it had a basement and had it upstairs. And <clears throat> when you went down to the basement, it was books all, all the way down to the floor, all the way up, all the, all the way down. That's like my dream. <laughs> and then his office was huge. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I guess it was, a, it must've been a bedroom, but it didn't seem like a bedroom when I went in there because it seemed big mm -hmm. and it was, it was the first thing you notice is there wasn't just a desk. Mm -hmm. There were like three desks, different places to type. I think he had like typewriter definitely had a typewriter and I think he might've had like a crude word processing thing. This is in the nineties, early nineties. Um, and it was just books everywhere. Wow. Just, and the, these were like hardcover bound volume books. Mm -hmm. And, um, <clears throat> so when we went upstairs to the living room to have the tea and whatever we had coffee, maybe she, she would always, uh, Doris, Doris Lewis, who was his wife at the time, she died a little bit later, but, but she would make us snacks and stuff like that. And, um, and we would sit there in the living room and I would, we would make, meet every week and I would have a list of questions that I wanted to ask them. And a lot of them actually had to do with Mormonism because I had Mormon friends but uh, we, we just like a lot of questions about the world and like, you know, evolution versus creation. Um, a lot of it was apologetic stuff. And, and he would listen carefully and then he would summarize the question and he would, he would answer it in such a way that he didn't make you feel stupid. Yeah. But, and he wasn't pretentious at all, mm -hmm. but he would answer it in such a way that it was pretty clear that he thought about that a long time ago for the first time, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And he read many people that had already thought about that a long time ago mm -hmm. and without being pretentious or making right. you feel stupid, but in a way that, and in a way, in fact, that was kind of generous that made you, yeah. made, made you feel like you were tapping into something like, yeah, oh, you were I like how you said that. And it was good. I, 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 I appreciated the way he said that he would, he would be complimentary, but it would also clear that he was way ahead of you. 
like light years. But you respected and, him and his knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also he was giving you a little bit of hope that you could get there too, but yeah. it was going to take a lot of work. Yeah. Which is and, good. And one of the first things he would do is say, how do you define this term? You got to yeah. define your terms. Yeah. You got to start with definitions for sure. So. You know, that's, I think what you just described does can help with kids in the classroom or anywhere else is starting with their questions, you know, yeah. starting with their questions is a great place to start because they do have questions, you know, and building on those with respect and giving them good answers. And that, that makes them feel like they are tapping into something, yeah. you know, Jessica, would you mind just pointing over your shoulder to that, to Gordon Lewis's book? I just want to give him a shout out. Oh, right there. That white one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. <laughs> um, and I was just going to say, um, feet answering their questions. What were we talking about? But, um, oh, just curiosity, importance of definitions, um, Oh, and oh, in the Tuttle Twins book, the yeah. twins, and it's woven kind of throughout a couple books and in the American history book, the twins go to their neighbor, Fred, and it sounds a lot like the relationship you just described. They go mm. to his house. He has loads of books oh. and they have a conversation that's friendly and respectful, but he kind of is like peeling back the layers mm. of information for them and good sources. So they generally, they keep going back to him with their questions as they stumble on something new. So it's actually a lot like what you just described. And um, it's wow. kind of, in, it's really endearing, yes. you know, yeah. and um, you know, yeah. kids need that too. They need mentors and people with wisdom that are willing to take the time to not just say, you guys are dumb. You're from a really dumb generation <laughs> and yeah. I'm annoyed with you, but like who take the time to say, what are your questions? What are you thinking about? And then can slowly reveal more and more of what they know, you know? Mm. Wow. So, um, but that's your job. <laughs> well, I appreciate the role that each of us has in yeah. this whole thing, the professors, yeah. the, get them later but then mm -hmm. the great parents like yourself mm -hmm. that yeah. get them first and then people like connor who help the parents yeah the parents need all the help they can get because <laughs> they're shooting yeah. you know we're products of the same we're products of the right. same education system you're a public school kid right yeah i'm a public school graduate so is my husband so yeah. we're my i you know, we're just shooting in the dark. Not really, you know, we're prayerfully yeah. considering and researching, right. but you're doing, we're, yeah, you're doing we're the best you can. Yeah, yeah. And we're looking for good resources and it takes people like Connor who are willing to make them. And, you know, we look at podcasts like yours who have great conversations and kids want to listen. Kids, my son's age, want to listen to those conversations. They're not, wow. they don't want to be treated like dumb little minions you know hmm. they don't they want to understand big ideas and they want to wrestle with it so yeah well i'm glad that connor's people re reached out and scheduled this because i didn't know who he was honestly yeah. <laughs> and i was like and i, I get that i get people yeah. coming wanting me to interview them and i'm like a lot of it is just eye roll stuff because i can tell they didn't even look at the podcast and they don't even know what they're i don't know what kind of list they're going off of but but this uh, lady who worked for him um, must have listened to a little, some, at least something. 
So mm -hmm. she, she had an idea of that we weren't communists and <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you had your expertise to lend uh -oh. to us today too, as a homeschool mom. Oh yeah. That's okay. a big deal. Well, yeah. I'm just learning as I go, but thanks for letting me be a part of the conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jessica Wilkinson, homeschool thanks. mom in Washington, right? Still? Yes. Mm -hmm. Washington. Okay. All right. Signing off. <laughs>